you uh, please bow your heads with me? Um, Father, the crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but you, O Lord, test the heart. Father, when you test our hearts, may they not be found wanting. This morning, as we open the book of Esther, we ask that you would help us to examine our own hearts. You've called some of us into difficult circumstances. We ask that you would help us to trust your providence and your care for us as we actively seek to do what is right. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ and the assurance of salvation. We thank you for the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that you rule the world and are sufficient for every circumstance. Uh, this morning, is, we ask that you would increase our faith, bless our children, that they would walk with you, uh, draw our hearts to you as a church, confessing and turning from everything that keeps us from you, receiving you in our hearts with joy. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, some of you might be wondering, what in the world are we doing here? We're, uh, we are in the book of Esther, and how do we get here? So uh, I want to kind of explain to you a little bit of, of what we're doing and why this morning. Uh, this is a little bit of an atypical um, uh, Sunday in that we're going through a whole book of the Bible with 10 chapters. Uh, it's the book of Esther, and uh, this traditionally uh, is done uh, in the Jewish calendar on, on the date of Purim. Uh, so this is not the date of Purim, and uh, we're not a Jewish synagogue, so why are we doing this, uh, you might ask. Um, if you want to move that forward, uh, one slide here. Um, th there's three reasons why we would uh, be in the book of Esther right now. First, the biblical timeline, then our timeline, and then uh, finally that, uh, that Esther speaks into our circumstances. First, uh, we have been going through as a church uh, through Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, and before that, we did First and Second Kings. And so these are historical books that tell the story of the kingdom of Israel, uh, first as a unified kingdom and then uh, as a divided kingdom. And then um, there, the, uh, both, king, both the Israel and Judah are exiled. And, uh, and then we get uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. When they were exiled, it was uh, by their enemies, and uh, Scripture tells us it's because of their idolatry. And so uh, the, the good news about the exile is that God promised he would bring the exiles back. And that's what Ezra and Nehemiah is all about. We've been talking uh, about um, what God did in order to restore the kingdom. Now, Esther is the only book of the Bible, it's the only scripture we have that tells some of the events that actually took place in the exile. So if you look in our timeline here, we have Jerusalem Falls, and there's Cyrus's decree that talks about uh, people coming back. And then um, we have the temple being restored. And then under Nehemiah, we have the walls restored. In between the temple and the walls being restored, we have the book of Esther. Now at the bottom, if you're kind of anxious to re do a little extra credit here and you want to learn more, uh, there are some prophets that wrote during this period as well. So we have uh, Haggai and Zechariah and also Malachi. So you can dig into those books if you want on, on your own time here. But this morning, what we're going to do is uh, it takes a little while to get through this scripture. It's, uh, it's not what we normally do. Um, and, and we're, we as a society probably aren't as good at listening as, uh, as perhaps uh, we used to be in days past. We live in the age of the internet and the microwave and I'm waiting for my coffee to get warm and that sort of thing. But this morning, what I'd love for us all to do is to let the scripture soak in. Just let it soak in with expectation on what the Holy Spirit might do on your heart this morning. Let it soak in. Um, the second reason why we're going through the book of Esther right now is it, it uh, sort of uh, falls in line with LifeSpring's timeline, with our timeline as a church. It's, it's good timing. It's, it's good timing as far as the scripture that we've been reading, but it's also good timing uh, with what's taking place uh, on, the, on the days ahead. We're um, building a place to gather to bless the, the community, and we're going to be needing uh, additional leaders as we move forward. And so we're, we're entering into a new series. It's going to be on Christian leadership. So we're going to be uh, uh, doing an elder search, but, uh, but also just looking for uh, men and women who will be leading various uh, ministries that we see as we see God grow in the church. We're really excited about this. Well, Esther is a story about a woman uh, who rises to the occasion under extremely difficult circumstances and 
and acts as a leader. And in so doing, God uses her to save her nation. And then we've got this guy, Mordecai, who also acts in an amazing way. He acts as Esther's surrogate father. So just to catch us up to where we are right now, there is this uh, King Xerxes. Now, you're, if you have your Bibles uh, with you and you have an ESV or, or uh, maybe a King James, you, the name will be Ahasuerus. But if you have like an NIV or maybe a Holman, I think it's uh, Xerxes, you might say, well, why is this king named two different things? Well, Ahasuerus is the Hebrew version. Uh, Artaxerxes is the Greek version, and he has another name, which is in Persian. So um, there may be some different names and different uh, places here. Cush is also Ethiopia, and if you're following along, you might find a, a few little differences. Um, but what I'd love for you to do is just um, listen to this story as we move forward and, uh, and just ask um, God, not only um, wh where are we at with, as a church, but how does this intersect with my story? This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden in the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from the wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zathar, and Carcass, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Merdish, Marcina, and Mamukin, the seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs had taken to her. The Mamukin replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of the provinces of King Xerxes. For the, king's, for the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persians and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no, one, there will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice, so the king did as Mamukins proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household, using his native tongue. 
Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for a beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who's in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who, the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, son of ba king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had in charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day, he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a, young woman could, before a young woman's turn came to go into the King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came up for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihel, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now, the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials, he proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal reality. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, but Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality just as Mordecai had told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadetha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey king's command? Day after day, they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. 
Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet, having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked, at for, looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the purr, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, there's a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces in your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Then, on the thirteenth day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces, and the nobles, nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in a sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuch and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hethik, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to a tenor and, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hethik went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and to explain to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for her mercy, to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the peoples of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go. Gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. 
Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all the Esther's instructions. At this point, uh, Queen Vashti has been dismissed as queen because she was unwilling to come to a drunken party that the king was hosting. Queen Vashti had her own feast among the, the women, but she didn't want to come. Um, so this king is, is fairly capricious. Um, he dismissed her, according to his advisors, and then uh, and he, he put on his wealth for display for 180 days, probably because he was about to invade Greece. And uh, that was an unsuccessful campaign in Greece. And then he came back and he has no queen. So he's about to uh, have, uh, uh, look for a queen. And uh, so he has uh, all of his people scouting out all the available attractive young single women. And, uh, and so they gather them and this is his potential harem. And uh, the ones that are chosen uh, have a beauty treatment that takes place. Um, and it, it's a year-long beauty treatment. Can you imagine? Uh, your, your beauty treatment's gonna take a year. And, uh, and so they, they're gathered, and Esther, her name, her Jewish name is Hadassah, um, Esther is gathered up among these maidens. Now Esther was an orphan, her mom and dad had been killed, and uh, her cousin, Mordecai, took the position of her father. He, was, he raised her, he cared for her, he made sure everything was good, and so when she was swept up into, with, this, uh, with this group of young women, he kept going and visiting and making sure everything was okay in the midst of this. Perhaps he couldn't keep her out of the harem, but he at least tried to make sure that she was safe in, in the midst of all this. And so this is, uh, this is the situation that Esther found herself in. Can you imagine? It's not exactly the ideal situation for Mordecai or for Esther, and they're probably wondering, where is God in all this? Where is God? How could this happen? We are in exile over here, and now Esther's been swept up in a, in a potential harem for the king. Could it get any worse? And so um, then we find that in the midst of all of this, uh, Mordecai is not bowing to this, uh, the king's second-in-command, Haman, when, he, when uh, Haman enters into the gate. And various reasons have been given why Mordecai was unwilling to bow, but I think the reason, the primary reason probably is because of his Jewish heritage. He's unwilling to bow before Haman because he's only going to bow before the one true God. And so when Haman comes in, Mordecai is unwilling to do that. Uh, Haman is... Um, angry about the situation, and so he's, uh, and rather than just doing Mordecai in, he wants to do in all of Mordecai's people, the Jewish people. And so Mordecai presents this problem to Esther, who now seems like she's the, the favored one. She's going to be the new queen, and, uh, and, and he said, you know, this is what it's like. And Esther said, well, I, I can't go before the king, because if I go before the king uh, and I'm not asked for I could be put to death. Look what he did to Vashti. And Mordecai said, you've been called for this. In fact, who knows, but you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. God's name's not mentioned, but it sure sounds like God, doesn't it? Proverbs 17, 3, which I've quoted before, the crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. In faith, Mordecai calls Esther to action. What will Esther do? And so Esther, is, uh, actually, incidentally, this has happened in Ezra and Nehemiah several times. Uh, when there's something significant that takes place, uh, the godly leader goes and asks for prayer. And this is exactly what Esther does. She asks for fasting and prayer. She said, uh, Mordecai, okay, that's fine. You fast and pray, everybody fast and pray for me, and I'm gonna do the same thing. And if I die, I die. Okay. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. 
the king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asked. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the queen again asked Esther, Now what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Esther replied, My petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife. Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him, and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only one Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she's invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see the Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife, Suresh, and all his friends said to him, Have a pole set up, reaching to a height of 50 cubits, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. <clears throat> that night, the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bithana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the door who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who was in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have him bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to the one of the king's most noble princes. Let them, let them robe the man the king delights to honor, to honor and let, lead him on the horse through the city's streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on a horseback through the cities, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still take, talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet, and as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, 
And if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he? The man who dared to do such a thing. Esther said, An adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the words left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A pole reaching to the height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, Impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she rose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he's pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all of the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have impaled him on the pole he set up. Now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. At once the royal secretaries were summoned. On the 23rd day of the third month, the month of seven, they wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors, and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province in the language of each people and also the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers, who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers riding the royal horses went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple of robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, <clears throat> it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews, with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. 
On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned, and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities in all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed Parshandatha, Delphon, Espatha, Paratha, Adalia, Aridatha, Parmashta, Arise, Aride, Vaisatha, the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. The number of those killed in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king the same day. The king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? It will also be granted. If it pleases the king, Esther answers, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also, and let Haman's 10 sons be impaled on poles. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they impaled the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa three hundred men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed seventy-five thousand of them and did not lay their hands on the plunder. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th, and then on the 15th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. That is why rural Jews, those living in the villages, observed the 14th of the month of Adar as the day of joy and feasting, a day for giving presents to each other. Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as a time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as a month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days and days of feasting and joy and giving, presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of the Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast a purr, that is the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head and that he and his sons should be impaled on the poles. Therefore, these days were called the Purim from the word Pur. Because of everything written in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they had and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation by every family and in every province and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. So Queen Esther, daughter of Abihel, <laughs> along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm the second letter concerning Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of Xerxes' kingdom, words of goodwill and assurance to establish these days of Purim at their designated times, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Nestor had decreed for them, and as they had established for themselves and their descendants in the regard to the times of fasting and lamentation. Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim, and it was written down in the records. 
King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores, and all his acts of power and might, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted. Are they not written the book of annals of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, permanent among the Jews, and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews, because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. I want to uh, thank Naaman and Rachel for, uh, they practiced and practiced all this, so we have names and everything down, so thank you for uh, doing the reading on this. And, uh, and also just uh, grateful to have God's word read aloud. And, and before you escape, uh, I also wanted to, uh, to ask you, um, I, I know um, both of you had, had really appreciated uh, reading this, this uh, and, 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 uh, and talking about different things that you'd gotten out of it. And just wanted to, uh, what, 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 did, uh, what did you learn as you were reading through this, uh, this passage and, and meditating on it? I'll let Queen Esther go first. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think the biggest thing I took from it was that no matter where you are in your life, there, you are built for something bigger. You have a huge purpose, and God already has that plan laid, like, laid out before you, and all you have to do is take that first step. Like when Mordecai had said to Esther, oh, I don't know how to quote it, but um, you've been put here for such a time as this. That's what all of us, I think, have been put here for such a time as this. And I just think that's absolutely amazing. All right, Mordecai. <laughs> yes. Um, I, um, what I take out, of, take out of it still, um, it just really sets big in my head and my heart is, um, you know, there are times when um, you feel that you should stand up and do something and you should actually you should do it, but you feel um, that you shouldn't, or you can, or you have, you, you're a little hesitant, and you know it that it's you know it's right. Um, so I think it was a good it was a a good example um, that Esther showed that hey, even if I have to put my life on the line, I'm going to do what's right. Um, so I just think that's a that's one of the biggest messages I got out of it um, is that no matter what, no matter what the sacrifice, if it's if it's the right thing to do, then do the right thing. Thank you. Well, can we uh, thank them? Yeah. All right, guys, go ahead and have a seat. <clears throat> and uh, I hadn't actually leave myself a whole lot of time right now, but uh, I did have a couple things um, I wanted to, to mention. Um, and, and one of them is, is, where is God in this story? Uh, his name's not mentioned. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's left to the reader. And by the way, this whole, this whole narrative is descriptive rather than prescriptive. Should the ten sons of Haman, not Naaman, be, uh, should they have been impaled on poles? doesn't say anything about that. Doesn't doesn't say about what should have happened. The reader is left to their own devices to try to understand uh, what's taking place here. And so when we look for God in here, we say, well, God seems to be over and under and throughout the story, but not explicitly mentioned. And there's a reason why this, this um, is in the text, uh, in, in the Bible. This is one of the 66 books of the Bible. Is I think because sometimes in our lives, uh, you and I, uh, we're like, where is God right now in my circumstance? I need him to show up at my door. I need, and, and where is God? And yet, God is in, the, in this story. He's in the story that doesn't mention his name. He's in the ground that we walk on, the sky that's over our head. He's in the, the grass and the trees and everything. God has made all those things. It's his creation we walk in, and his spirit is present even if we don't acknowledge it or don't discern it. God is there. He is, and, and, the, and the big theological term for that is providence. God is the provider, and he's always there providing, sustaining, even in the difficult circumstances. So that's, that's amazing and really cool and, uh, and, and also helps us to kind of make sense out of our lives. And then when we look for examples here, um, thinking of, of um, what we can get, uh, and, and thank you so much. I think those are the really great points that you guys brought up about um, Esther and Mordecai. You know, uh, Mordecai uh, was 
the spiritual father for Esther. Uh, physical, spiritual, and he, he was the one who cared for Esther when her parents passed away. You know, um, we may or may not have children, but we can all be spiritual fathers and mothers to other people. And there's that Second Timothy 2.2 passage which talks about the things have been trusted to you and trust to faithful people who are going to entrust it on to others. And the idea is that it, pass it on, pass it on, pass it on. We can be spiritual fathers and mothers. That's a great example in Mordecai. And then Queen Esther, if I perish, I perish. She's called to a certain thing. Who wants that call? Who wants to be called to a harem? Who wants to be called to go risk their life before a capricious king? Who wants that calling? And yet she knew this is her particular calling in life that in her messy circumstances, God was calling her to a particular thing and it could result in her death and she accepted that calling. And the, the, the precious treasure of her heart was, was tested with the heat of the crucible and it was found good. And, uh, and so in, in leadership, sometimes it's... Um, whatever position God's put us in, sometimes we have to make difficult decisions, and especially right now as the context in our lives is changing, as, as our nation becomes uh, decreasingly uh, Christendom, uh, uh, perhaps people would disagree with us on, on central tenets of what we believe and, and how life works, and that we would be willing to do what God calls us to do in that very messy context. So there's some great examples for us. And one other, which I, I just, uh, at, years ago, I had the opportunity to go uh, walk through Auschwitz in, in Poland, and then later uh, through the um, Holocaust Museum in Israel. And I, I was just caught up with the fact that over the course of centuries, the Jewish people have been persecuted. I mean, millions and millions of them killed in various circumstances. And we want, as Christians, to be, um, to be a, a voice of life and a voice of protection for others. And I know in World War II there were Christians that, that helped save Jews. We want to be those kind of Christians. And, uh, and when we look at the circumstances of Esther, this was another time when the Jews were, when people tried to annihilate them. So how is my story related to the story of Esther? And, and uh, you know, we, we mentioned God's providence, that sometimes, um, sometimes uh, God's calling us to a particular thing, and, and the exact quote is, uh, and who knows, but that you have uh, come to your royal position for such a time as this, and perhaps you're saying, well, I don't have a royal position, but whatever position God's put you in, who knows that God has put you in this position, like it or not, for such a time as this, that God is calling something out of you that you may or may not want, but you hear his voice and you will be willing to be obedient, whatever that looks like. As a, um, as a church, we know that God's calling us to certain things right now. We're, we're uh, building a, a place to gather up on 173 and Siege Schlag. And, and uh, so there are various things that are taking place uh, up in this next year. And I had a group of leaders together, and, and I started our meeting by saying, this is the year of the mess, everyone. Let's just get over it. Uh, we're going to be having some bumps along the way as we get ready for whatever God has for us next. And we're just going to uh, do the best we can, what God called us to do, and, and, uh, and not worry about it. Um, but in that context, um, I, this next year, I'm going to be uh, leading the youth group uh, as a transitional role. And uh, so if you have kids that are in, uh, in uh, youth age, I uh, encourage you to, to have them uh, come be a part of that. It'll be on Sunday nights. And, uh, and also, if, uh, if you have a passion for the youth, perhaps uh, you'd like to help with youth leadership. We have a team, we have some, a plan, and I'm very excited about it, but we could use more help. So if you're excited about that, uh, you, you can join in that. We have needs in children's ministry. Um, and then uh, I'm really excited, uh, Terry Erickson's gonna be leading our, our groups and helping us with uh, leadership development. It, uh, he's gonna be coming on uh, one day a week for that. And, and uh, so if uh, maybe you're excited about groups, I encourage you to go, uh, go talk to him about, about that. Um, hospitality, connections, all sorts of things. You see a need, um, perhaps God's calling to something. I think one of the keys to this, though, is being prayerful. Just saying there are some things God's calling me to do and some things God's calling me not to do. 
And the things that God's calling me to do are not necessarily the most comfortable thing, but they are the thing that God's calling me to do. Um, comfort isn't necessarily something that, uh, that God's calling us to. Maybe the thing that God's calling us to do is the most thing we're most excited and most comfortable with. That's great. But maybe the thing is not the most comfortable thing. And, but we can tell, we can hear God's voice, and just like Esther, we'll step out of our comfort zone and we're going to take a risk because God's calling us to do that. Well, I, I'm so thankful for, uh, for this, uh, this time here together. I, I believe the public reading of God's word is powerful, more powerful than anything I have to say. And I also believe that every story in the Old Testament points to the New Testament, to Christ. And so if we're looking for Christ in the story, where is he? If God's not present, Christ is very much not present explicitly. On the other hand, um, what is this story about? It's, it's about salvation of exiles. And what did Jesus do? He set the prisoners free. Passage of Luke, he, Jesus identifies his ministry. He says, part of what I'm doing is I'm setting the prisoners free. And who are the prisoners? Well, all of us, others. That Christ um, would play that salvific role, um, both uh, some of the actions of Esther and Mordecai point to, to what Christ does for us. That Christ didn't actually, it wasn't just a, a threat of death, Christ actually experienced death for us. And he was willing to go that far so that all of our sins could be nailed to the cross with him. And then we are ultimately saved into the kingdom. And so, uh, like the story of Esther, uh, perhaps we live in exile in some ways. We're not in heaven yet. And yet we have a promise that we will be, and we trust God in that. And that's the role of Christ in this story. Well, on that note, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to uh, go directly into the Lord's Supper, which is uh, just a great way to experience the gospel physically. So would you please bow your heads with me? Uh, Father, thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. Thank you that you are a God that saves, a God that provides, a God that sustains. You are the God that made the heaven and the earth, and yet you have called us to be your children. What a privilege and what a delight. Lord, help us to go deeper and deeper into our relationship with you, and um, if for some reason we don't hear your voice on any given day, Lord, that we would trust that you are there. Our bodies are yours. The houses we live in are yours. The money in their bank account's yours. Our children are yours. Our parents are yours. Our friends are yours. There's nothing that we have is not yours. And so we entrust everything that you have given us into your care. Father, I pray that you would speak to each man, woman, and child um, this morning and help us to trust you in our life circumstances. In Jesus' name. Amen.